Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's diplomatic efforts are a complete embarrassment, but of course, the legacy media cheer them on. The ultimate fake news story, the Hunter Biden laptop story, turns out to be true, and Canada's Governor General projects her insane left-wing politics onto the Queen. It's Fake News Friday. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. I'm joined, as always, on Fridays by my producer and journalist here at True North, Harrison Faulkner. Harrison, how are you doing this morning? Pretty good. Pretty good. Excited to get into this. Yeah, so the first story we wanted to cover today is not exactly news other than just the way that the legacy media portrays. It's not fake news. Uh, but this is this is sort of the embarrassing attitude and way that our government carries itself when it comes to foreign policy and diplomacy. So I'm sure you saw this circulating online. The Canadian embassy in Ukraine tweets out a letter sent to them by the Russian government with their own edits in red. So this is a kind of juvenile, kind of like smack back, uh, you know, own your enemies, kind of just very immature behavior that you see on social media. Usually it's, you know, done back and forth between uh, political adversaries, young people, uh, not serious people, you know, someone trying to troll someone else. And yet this is what our diplomacy has come to trolling Russians and and editing a document. So so basically what we see here is a letter that was sent uh, w- which was like a fairly serious matter. You can you can read part of it. He says, um, Your Excellency, I'm reaching out to you with regard to an urgent matter related to the dire human rights situation in and around Ukraine. And then the Canadian uh, re- response here adds in an insert saying, which we have caused as a result of our illegal war of aggression. So this, this, I, I won't go through the whole letter because it's just so immature and incoherent and silly. Uh, but the idea is that they're, uh, you know, owning owning the Russians by changing their words to uh, admit guilt. And I, the the craziest thing is that this um, tweet garnered huge amounts of attention, lots and lots of retweets, 27,600 at the time of recording with 66,000 likes, Harrison. I mean, this is what our diplomacy has come to. And again, rather than the media kind of saying, wait a second, guys, this is really immature. This is like the public image of Canada on the world stage trolling and and behaving very juvenile. Um, Instead, we see the legacy media cheering them on, reporting it like, wow, look at this great uh, story of the Canadian embassy hitting back on social media. Uh, our friend Ben Woodfun had a great tweet that, that pretty much, uh, uh, in my opinion, exactly. So I'll read it here. It says, he says, this may rack up the likes and retweets, but surely I'm not the only one who is deeply uncomfortable with this kind of edgy but completely pointless online behavior from government organizations in the face of a catastrophe. It makes a serious and tragic situation seem like a joke. I agree with that 100%. Harrison, what did you think about this? Right. Well, you know, this is not the first time we have seen Canada be embarrassing on the world stage. We wonder why, under Justin Trudeau, Canada's place in the world has fallen. We've been left out of these um, out of these security organizations. We've been left out of these uh, important meetings because this tweet is kind of symbolic of this larger this larger sort of attempt to try and make Canada this weird. I don't know. Like like Ben said, this sort of edgy and pointless diplomatic behavior. This is this just goes to show you that Melanie Jolie is no Pearson, uh, certainly not. Um, and and this this just sort of, like I said, this is symbolic of, of Canada's 
of Canada's diplomatic presence. I mean, in the, earlier in the week, Melanie Jolie even admitted that Canada's role on the world stage is to bring people to the table or to try and to try and encourage diplomacy, which is just a, a nice way of saying that we don't do anything. And this is quite obviously why this is the case. Well, and and it's the opposite, Harrison, of what this would be doing. If Canada's role is to bring people to the table, mocking them on Twitter doesn't accomplish that at all. No, exactly. And and I want to read um, what the what the Russian UN ambassador wrote back because I think it's it it kind of it is it points at the point the problem of this tweet. He says. Um, Thank you, Canada at UN, for this kindergarten-level Russophobic libel. It only shows that your diplomatic skills and good manners are at the lowest ebb and gives an idea why your country's bid for a non-permanent seat in the Security Council was voted down twice in 20 years by UN membership. So he digs right at the UN Security Council um, loss. He, he digs right to the point. And I think, you know, one thing I wanted to pull was, it was a tweet by a political coordinator for Canada's UN mission who kind of, I think, maybe came out to try and do damage control on this tweet. He wrote on Twitter, he said, For naysayers out there, this was done in-house by a creative member of the team who is responsible for protecting civilians, took 30 minutes, only one draft, then published no back and forth with HQ. The aim was transparency for this blatant Russian disinformation, which they sent to all UN members. So the, the actual UN Canadian employee comes out and says... This was one draft, it took 30 minutes to do, and there was no back and forth, and HQ didn't even know about this. So, I mean, it, it kind of paints a picture that Canada's UN mission is, you know, totally without direction, and that they're, what they put out on social media is done by a creative member of the team without, without HQ even knowing about it. So, yeah, Candace, this was just, this was just another, another kind of embarrassing moment for Canada's foreign policy. Well, also they go right to process, right? Because I'm sure that some journalists out there may say, "Okay, let's let's a tip this. Let's let's find out. Like, let's put in an access to information and find out how long this took them, how many man hours." And so they're already trying to do damage control, saying there is no back and forth. Uh, don't worry, don't don't try to investigate this. It only took half an hour. Okay, it was a press release from a government. You you may say like I disagree with the content that they put out, but this is where we where we've come in our society that if you disagree with something then it becomes blatant disinformation. It's not just like, you know, we 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 didn't like the content. We didn't think that they put enough um, emphasis on the fact that they invaded and that they initiated this war. They just call it blatant disinformation. And uh, again, this, this whole idea that somehow the Canadian government are the arbiters of truth and that they're these super serious uh, diplomats out there uh, with a noble aim, which is to like expose Russian disinformation. It's, it's all just so stupid and again it, it projects such an embarrassing uh image onto canada like this is this is what we stand for on the world stage now uh, pretty pretty pathetic talking about uh pathetic uh disinformation actually uh this is a huge huge story from back in 2020 so uh we'll, we'll take you back to the presidential election 2020 uh something we, we in the media call an october surprise which is a big bombshell that breaks just weeks before the election and could have an impact on the election that was the hunter biden story so the new york post which is the oldest running newspaper in the united states it was started in 1801 by alexander hamilton the person and, uh, the founding father, one of the founding fathers of the United States, one of the authors of the Federalist Papers, started this newspaper. It's been running in existence since. It, it's sort of now more of a conservative tablet um, newspaper. However, it, it still had this, ver this uh, very real report that came out in October of 2020, right before the election, 
on Hunter Biden. So Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is this sort of sketchy, um, ne'er-do-well, uh, you know, son of a uh, son of a rich, uh, famous politician who uses his father's uh, power, uses his own last name as his own currency to do deals with adversarial and nefarious government regimes. That's his whole shtick. That's what Hunter Biden does for a living. And so this 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 individual Hunter Biden he drops off his laptop at a repair shop in Delaware in April 2019 because he's locked out and he just kind of leaves it there and so the the laptop repair shop eventually turns it over to the FBI and the FBI someone at the FBI I guess leaked it over to the New York Times and the content of the laptop was incredibly incriminating it, it included um, you know not 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 just uh, information emails about his corrupt business dealings and and all the money that he was making by trading off of his father's name but also uh, personal images of him smoking drugs, smoking crack, doing all kinds of incredibly awful and illegal things. Anyway, the, the New York Post story got completely censored. At the time, we were told that this was Russian disinformation, that it wasn't true. Uh, there were all kinds of experts out there telling us that that it has the hallmarks of, of, of a Russian disinformation theme. And therefore, the story was completely discredited. It wasn't taken serious by legacy media. And even worse... Uh, social media sites and social media giants like Twitter and Facebook prevented people from sharing it. They even locked the account of the New York Post. Well, uh, so, so that was all that all happened nearly two years ago. And part of the reason why I think uh, Joe Biden was elected was because the story was completely suppressed. Americans weren't able to know the truth about his, his family and his son's business dealings. Uh, and, and the business dealings also included Joe Biden as well in the laptop, uh, in the emails. Uh, Hunter Biden made it pretty clear that his dad was involved in some of these deals. Anyway, uh, fast forward to this week, Harrison, and the New York Times uh, val validates the the, the uh, authenticity of this story. So a comprehensive report about the ongoing federal probe into Hunter Biden's tax filings published by the New York Times on Wednesday night confirmed the existence of Joe Biden's first son's infamous laptop. In October 2020, the Post exclusively reported on the content of Hunter Biden's laptop that he ditched at a Delaware repair shop in April 2019. The laptop's hard drive contained a trove of emails, text messages, photos, and financial documents between Hunter Biden, his family, and business associates detailing how the president's son used his political leverage in his overseas business dealings. The repair shop owner reported the laptop to the FBI, which seized advice and its hard drive. So, and, and, and again, you know, uh, Facebook and Twitter both restricted the story. They wouldn't allow people uh, to post it. You couldn't share it. Um, and surely that had an impact. So so, so this, this is like the ultimate fake news story because legacy media and the social media giants suppressed it, telling us that it was fake news. In reality, Harrison, it was real. So, so the stories that the legacy media tell you are real are fake. The stories that they tell you are fake are real. This is truly incredible. Yeah, we're heading in that direction, certainly. And this this story about the laptop is is infamous. It'll go down in history, uh, as you said, Candace is one of the one of the worst examples of big tech and legacy media um, working together to influence an election. Now, this story, as as people know now, was incredibly damaging for Joe Biden's campaign. It outlined how throughout Joe Biden's vice presidency, Hunter Biden used his father's position to gain positions on boards such as the Burisma uh, Energy and Gas Company in Ukraine, and also how he used how he, how he was able to get money from, for example, the Moscow mayor's wife at the time. And there's a famous line in all of this between the between Hunter Biden and some of the Burisma 
dealings about 10% for the big guy. That was Joe Biden. And how they were basically using their political positions to make money and profit for themselves. Now, it's, it's, it's crazy because you hinted at this. Users on social media, on Facebook and Twitter, couldn't even share the article in private messages. So do we think for one moment that if there was an article this damaging to, uh, to Donald Trump's campaign, that it would be suppressed because it would be seen as Russian disinformation? Did we see any of the fake articles that turned out to be fake about the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia or the Steele dossier be slapped as disinformation? Of course not. This is, this is political. This is interference. Real journalists should be very concerned about this. They should be doing their jobs and, and, and doing the job that Miranda Devine at the New York Post did in, in originally publishing this story. And, and doing their jobs to tell the truth because we're heading in a very dangerous direction where if, the, if big tech likes a candidate in a race, they, they, they pick one of the horses in the, uh, in the horse race, they're going to do everything they can and they're going to wield incredible power to influence that election and to protect their guy. So it's, it's really dangerous. I think we're going to see something like this in Canada if we're not careful about it. And it, it's, it, should be a warning, it should be a warning to all journalists to pay attention to this sort of thing. Do your job and don't get caught up in the horse race if you might prefer one candidate over the, over the other. Well, absolutely. And the fact that they did this clearly to, to take down Donald Trump, to, to protect Joe Biden, uh, it's having a catastrophic effect because look at the way America is being run right now um, by someone who... It doesn't really seem fit uh, for the position. And just just the fact that, that social media has that kind of power uh, really, you're right, should should scare every every journalist. Well, bringing it back to Canada here, Harrison, uh, this was one of these really strange, strange stories. It was like, um, you know, parody becoming reality or something like that. Uh, Dean Blendell, who is a former radio host in Toronto, uh, went on social media to attack conservative leader Candace Bergen, apparently for not clapping enough. So Dean Bindel has this whole deranged uh, Twitter thread uh, it, attacking uh, Candace Bergen. He writes this, the only person not clapping after Zelensky's speech to the Canadian Parliament, Candace Bergen. So just a bit of background. Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the president of the United States, addressed the Canadian Parliament, basically doing his best war cry, trying to encourage the West, Canada, the United States, NATO, uh, to join in and, and take part in this war, to, to, to escalate it and to turn a conflict between Ukraine and Russia into basically a world war. And, and so he gave this speech. And in response, and this is fairly typical when a when a world leader addresses parliament, uh, unanimous standing ovation from uh, parliamentarians in the House of Commons. They gave a long, extended uh, standing ovation, round of applause. So what did Dean Blundell do? He found an eight-second clip of, uh, zoomed in on Candace Bergen, you can see it, we'll show it on the screen here, where she's just, you know, taking a little break from clapping or whatever. You could, you could see that there's other people who are also taking a break. This was, this was like a few minutes into the standing ovation. I mean, these things are very ridiculous, and, and a lot of them are just for show. Uh, I, can, I can look at three or four other MPs here who have stopped clapping because, like I said, uh, this was quite a ways into the standing ovation. But still, uh, Dean Blendell's uh, initial tweet there got plenty of retweets and attention, even though this is fake news. This is fake news because we can see that Candace Bergen was indeed giving a standing ovation and clapping. Regardless, Dean Blundell taking it all out of context, he goes on to say, uh, this is one of those incoherent rants. I don't, I don't think Dean Blundell is quite um, in his comf comfort zone talking about foreign policy because the, the words that he's going to say here just don't make any sense. So 
This isn't something you half-ass. She started to clap, stopped with a few other cons. No Ukraine ribbon. Words of support on behalf of just conservatives, not Canadians. She's really not good at hiding her theocratic self. Okay, so first of all, he's piling on saying that she's not even wearing a Ukraine ribbon. What I, I guess next he's going to say, like, she doesn't have the Ukraine flag in her Twitter profile. She, she's not, she's not, you know, supporting the latest thing with, with us good liberals over here and accuses her of being a, the, a theocratic Self. I don't think he knows what the word theocratic means because um, I, I don't think that this in any way, shape or form shows what Kenneth Bergen is some kind of a Christian fundamentalist who wants to impose Christianity onto others. I mean, that's typically what a theocrat means, someone who governs by religion. Uh, that's not what Candace Bergen is doing by not clapping at Zelensky. That's not what Vladimir Putin does. So I don't think he quite knows what that word means. He, he goes on to say, I don't care what side of the aisle or the color of the party, my disdain for the political commerce and the power centers that run it are effing intense. I, I'm sorry, I don't really understand. So he's now talking about his disdain for political commerce. I don't know what that has to do with Candace Bergen not clapping. Uh, regardless, he, he goes, we have but one choice. We are Canadian. We stand with Ukraine and our support is unilateral. I think he might have meant to say unconditional. Uh, unilateral means that one person dictates it to everyone else. I, I, again, this guy, like, okay, yeah, he, he, made a cl he made a point here. Candace Bergen wasn't clapping for that eight-second clip out, taken out of a two-minute uh, clip out of context. And then he just... Uh, keeps going and digresses into an insane political rant showing how uh, clueless and uh, basically politically illiterate he is. Harrison, what did you think of this one? Well, it was a nice try by Dean uh, to sound all very grand and, and very, you know, sound on foreign policy, but I think it was a bit of a failure because if you watched the the speech from Zelensky to the Canadian Parliament, what became very clear was, as you said at the beginning, Everyone in the house was clapping. Everyone was trying to, you know, in, engage in the sort of the performative acts that you would do for any sort of speech given to the, the Canadian Parliament. But one thing, one thing, when I read this that I didn't didn't make much sense to me was that Candace Bergen's speech was actually more, almost more passionate than Justin Trudeau's. She actually called for a no-fly zone over part of Ukraine, which is more than Trudeau did, and not something I think would be a wise decision. Um, but nonetheless, she was very, very passionate about um, Canada's defense of Ukraine, and it's her job to project the conservative position, not to not to speak on behalf of the country. That's the job of the prime minister. So again, this just shows a lack of understanding uh, from Dean Blundell, and I can only think of that that line in the Princess Bride about how. Uh, you know, you keep using those words, but I don't think they mean what you think they mean. And that's what I, that's what I thought of when I, when I saw this, this ramble, um, this Twitter ramble. And I want to pull quotes from Bergen, from Bergen's speech really quick, because I just want to show you exactly what she said. She says, we must stand with Ukraine. It's not a choice. It's a moral duty, which is pretty much in line with, with, um, Dean's final tweet. And then she says, we must do more to work with our allies to secure Ukrainian airspace, which is a rallying cry around around declaring a no-fly zone, at least partially in the areas um, of the humanitarian corridors, as she said, over Ukraine. So again, this just misses the mark totally. Well, and a, a no-fly zone is a euphemism. Uh, a no-fly zone means American jets fighting and shooting down Russian jets. That would turn this from a war 
a conflict between Ukraine and Russia into a hot war between two global superpowers, or at least American superpower, and a nuclear-armed country, Russia. So, so anyone calling for a no-fly zone is is calling for huge escalation and the involvement of NATO and American planes, which again would turn this into a very different kind of conflict. I know, I know this this reference is a little old for you, Harrison. You're you're a little young for the Seinfeld references, but immediately when you see someone, you know, calling someone out. Uh, trying to embarrass them, saying, how, how dare you not wear the Ukraine ribbon? Uh, this, this goes right back uh, to Seinfeld for those of us who, who, who watched it. it you know, we used to say that there's a Seinfeld reference for everything. The brilliant uh, Larry David uh, you know, uh, has a great understanding of various situations. So I'm going to play this clip because I, I, I like Seinfeld and Kramer is, is my favorite character. So here is an old, old reference. Um, but for those of you that remember Seinfeld, uh, this pretty much exact same thing happened. So um, we, can, we can see in this scenario, Candace Bergen is, is like the Kramer character and everyone yelling at her for not, not being supportive enough for uh, Ukraine is like the A's ribbon. Here's that clip. Uh, uh, Cosmo, Kramer. Uh, okay, you're checked in. Yeah, thank you. Here's your AIDS ribbon. Uh, no, thanks. You don't want to wear an AIDS ribbon? Uh, no, no. But you have to wear an AIDS ribbon. I have to? Yes. Yeah, see, that's why I don't want to. But everyone wears the ribbon. You must wear the ribbon. What you are? You're a ribbon bully. Hey! Hey, you! Come back here! Come back here and put this on! Hey, where's your ribbon? Oh, I don't wear the ribbon. You don't wear the ribbon? Aren't you against AIDS? Yeah, I'm against AIDS. I mean, I'm walking, aren't I? I just don't wear the ribbon. Who do you think you are? Put the ribbon on! Hey, Cedric! Bob! This guy won't wear a ribbon. Who? Who doesn't want to wear the ribbon? I, I love Seinfeld. It's just a classic, uh, timeless reference there, and it's pretty much playing out. Uh, in front of us, and, and it's not just Candace Bergen, Harrison, there was a Russian tennis player who has been banned from playing at Wimbledon um, unless he comes out and explicitly condemns Vladimir Putin. So we're talking about uh, Daniil Medvedev. Apparently, uh, you know, we saw this, and I talked about it earlier in the week with Rupa Supramania, um, that you know anyone who's Russian is now open season and fair game for harassment, intimidation. Uh, Facebook even changed their policies so they now allow uh, incitement of violence against Russians. Well, we're seeing now that it's not enough if you if you condemn Russia. It's not enough if you condemn. Uh, Putin, they, they want you to like stand up on a, on a pulpit and, you know, disavow your entire country and culture, uh, saying that someone can't even play tennis now um, unless they provide assurances that they do not support the Russian uh, president. This is, politics is seeping into every aspect of our life. And this, this, this treatment of Russian uh, players, Russian performers is, is just, uh, it's so illiberal, Harrison. I, it's just, it's something that doesn't belong in a Western liberal society. What do you think? No. And, and you know what? We, we've seen this in sports coming for a long time. We've seen it um, where, you know, athletes are expected to, you know, pass the purity test to meet the political standards of the people that own the teams or the people that run the leagues. And this is another example of that. This this tennis player was um, was or is currently the number one tennis player in the world, and he won't be able to compete in the number one tennis tournament, which is Wimbledon. I don't know much about tennis, but I think that might be the number one. And unless unless he comes out and condemns the leader of his country, which may or may not be a dangerous thing for him to do as a Russian, 
when he returns back to his country. And not not to say that it, it's it's right or wrong, but it, it's not just an easy thing to do. The UK sports minister said, this is, I, I want to say this because this is, this is important to note, the UK sports minister, minister said, absolutely nobody flying the flag of Russia should be allowed or enabled. We need what, we need some potential assurance that they are not supporters of Putin, and we are considering what requirements we may try to get some assurances along those lines. And, and then, you know, you, you compare that statement to the statement of, of this guy, this tennis player, Medvedev, who just says, it's tough to talk on this subject because I want to play tennis, play in different countries. Uh, my message is always the same. I want peace in all the world, all countries. I mean, the guy is just a tennis player. He's not, he's not, he's not part of the part of the the plot in this war. And it just shows a direction that we're heading in, which I think is really disappointing. Sports should be an escape from politics. It should not be dominated by um, what seems to be very partisan political engagement. And I think in general, we should all just be, we should all just want to have some separation. We, politics shouldn't dominate every single aspect of our lives, but we're getting to that point and it's quite disappointing. Well, and the, the whole point behind international competition is to build bridges and to make inroads and to understand each other, right? And so the idea that if, if you don't have the exact same line of thinking and you, and you don't say the exact same things condemning different countries, you can't participate. I mean, that's, that's, completely the opposite of the idea of these international sport competitions. So uh, you're completely right. One final story I want to talk about here, Harrison, this just drives me absolutely crazy. The politicization of the position of the governor general and the cheerleading and sonography that happens over at the CBC. So I'm talking about this headline, Governor General Mary Simon says she and the queen discussed reconciliation and Canada's real history. Okay, here we go. So, so, so we are basically told here that we're going to rewrite Canada's history books um, to include all the latest woke talking points, um, basically saying that all the English people, all the British people who settled Canada, the, the pioneers of this country, the people who came and put together our liberal democracy or tradition, our great tradition that we got from the British, uh, that that's all out, um, out with that, in with this idea that we are nothing but a group of, that Canadians are nothing but um, colonial settlers, um, imperialists who who came and committed genocide, basically. That's, that's the idea. Idea. So, so Governor General Mary Simon is is basically coming back and telling the CBC what her and the Queen talked about in a private meeting. So much for the idea um, that the Governor General is a figurehead, head of state, and that they don't get into the fray. I'll just say I love Queen Elizabeth. I think she's a tremendous individual, incredibly strong woman in her 90s, still the monarch. Uh, she's set an incredible example for the royal family as to how not to engage and, and, and put herself in the middle of the politics of the day. She's stayed completely out of the fray for the most part. She's an incredibly classy woman who, who really represents the elegance of the crown. Mary Simon could learn a lot from the queen, except for instead of going to meet the queen and trying to learn from her, she's trying to lecture the queen and and uh, purport her own worldview onto the queen. So, so this story, Harrison, is not based on what actually happened during that meeting, because we don't know what happened. It's a private meeting. It's based on what Mary Simon, the governor general, reported back to the CBC about the conversation. So let me just read a few lines here. I, you know, the whole thing about how we're going to rewrite our history books is just appalling, uh, but that's sort of what we've come to expect from the woke left today. Uh, she says that she, uh, so this is from the CBC piece that says, Simon said she felt that the Queen was well informed on issues affecting Canada, including the recent occupation of Ottawa by anti-vaccine mandate protesters. So that's the CBC's own editorialization um, classifying the protests uh, 
Freedom Convoy as an anti-vaccine mandate protest and calling it an occupation. Now, this is what Simon said. She said, I think she found it difficult to understand. Simon said of the Queen's reaction to the blockades. It's like the Ukraine crisis. She finds it difficult to understand. See, I, I interpret that, Harrison, as the Queen's diplomatic way of saying that she thinks that the situation is far more complicated than the way that the media paints it, than the way that Justin Trudeau paints it, than probably the way that Mary Simon paints it. Again, this is her not getting involved in the fray, not validating the sort of politicized way of describing the Freedom Convoy and just saying that she, she thinks it's more complicated and, and that it's difficult uh, to understand. Again, um, this, this, this is the Queen taking the high road and Mary Simon continuing to push her own ideology onto the Queen. So it goes on, it says, Simon said the Queen told her she knows what it's like to live in a city under siege with the air raid sirens going off at all hours. So the Queen's trying to be empathetic and saying, oh, it must have been hard for you to be in Ottawa when all those horns were honking. Um, I, I, I can relate because of this um, situation that I lived through. World War II, when the Nazis were actually bombing Britain during the um, during the air raids um, and the Battle of Britain there. So, so here we have the Governor General comparing the truckers to Hitler's war during the Second World War and projecting it and saying that it was really the queen that was saying that. So, so this is a quote. It says, during the years of the Hitler regime, I guess she was very much affected by that. And she said, I think I could almost see some similarities happening. And she talked about that. So again, look at how many times that the governor general couches her words here. I think she could almost see some similarities happening. So, so this is, this is not the queen saying that there are similarities. This is Mary Simon saying that she thinks there are some similarities to some things like three removed, again, putting words into the queen's mouth, making the queen sound like she's the one politicizing this. No, this is, this is the governor general of Canada comparing freedom loving truckers to Nazis in the CBC and the CBC just publishing it like it's no big deal. There's so much wrong here, Harrison. There's layers and layers and layers of just incompetency and corruption. Um, but this is sort of what we've come to expect from our state broadcaster and our embarrassment of a governor general. Well, under Justin Trudeau, the position and the institution of the governor general, which used to be this this great thing in our country, at least in my, my opinion, it used to be great, has now become a total joke. You know, we went from we went from scandals with Julie Payette as governor general now to a far left political uh, activist filling the role in Mary Simon. And I don't like to I don't like to say those things about the institution, but we're really getting to that point. And when you read articles like this, it it really makes me angry because it shows just how just how how much of an embarrassment um, that that institution has become. The idea that the governor general could go to uh, could go to meet with the Queen and even make the insinuation that there is some sort of comparison to what happened in Ottawa to the Blitz is totally insulting. It's, it's, I mean, there are other words to describe it, but I won't get into them here. Um, it, it's just, it's really, really disappointing to see this. And I think you, you touched on this, Candice, when, when the Queen said that, or supposedly said that she didn't understand the, the, the way that the, the story was being pushed or or she just said that i think that's because frankly the queen knows better she has been around to experience everything from the second world war up to now and she knows better than to just accept the cbc line regarding what happened in ottawa and she knows better than to just accept the uh the the message being pushed about what's happening around the world she's clearly very wise she she knows exactly what's going on and it 
it shows the the complete the complete contrast between the queen and the queen's representative in Canada, which couldn't be further from the truth. Frankly, after reading this, I don't believe Mary Simon represents the queen at all. I don't believe Mary Simon at this point is 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 a, is a reasonable representation of the queen, which is what the governor general should be. So it's really disappointing to read this, and it's it's a sad state, really, how far the institution has fallen. Right. A governor general should be seen and not heard. I don't think that she's a cabinet minister. Her position isn't to go out there and spout off her opinion on things uh, or to go lecture the queen and then turn around and boast to the CBC about it, getting them to write a news story. It's a complete abomination of the title and the role. And again, good for the queen for not falling into the traps, even in Mary Simon's own, you know, reenaction of, of what happened. I mean, she's the one that's recounting this to the CBC. Uh, she, she, she lets it be known that the Queen wasn't going along with her leftist ideolo ideological nonsense. Uh, but, but again, this story does not reflect well on Mary Simon. It does not reflect well on the CBC. There's not an ounce of critical thinking or skepticism whatsoever the way the CBC covers this. It's just really promoting Mary Simon and her ideology, not taking any account of the fact that this is a symbolic role. She's representative of the Queen. She's not a cabinet minister. She doesn't get to spout off her own opinions. Um, and yet that's all we see from this piece. So I, I would I would chalk this up as a, a all in day's work over at the CBC, a typical failure of our media as well as our institutions. But that's uh, that's what this show is all about, Harrison. So thanks so much for joining us today. It's been uh, fun to have you on the show. Thanks for tuning in. It's Fake News Friday. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.